Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Well, good morning. I hope we can turn the lights up, too. I'd love to see the audience and keep you awake. Don't want to put you to sleep. And we're, ah, there you are. Okay, super. Hey, what a neat worship and praise song. I want to thank the worship team for that. All right. Amen. You know, the first part of that actually comes out of Numbers chapter 6, where uh, God tells Aaron, this is what I want you to pray over the people. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may he lift up his countenance unto you and give you peace. That's what God says to say to us. God is for us. That's why we're here, isn't it? God is for us. He is with us, eh? you know, before us and, and all around us and so forth. Thanks, Tim, for sharing the mission of Victory Church, all right? To know him, to make him known, because that's really what I want to talk about today. I'm going to look at five verses in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 23, that kind of deal with, with this. The context is that Jesus has just been crucified, and on this day that he, this story is actually taking place, he has already been resurrected. And uh, he comes upon the disciples who are a little nervous because think about this. If you were a follower of Jesus at this time, if you were one of his disciples, they took your leader and they arrested him, they abused him, and then they crucified him. Are you next? Uh, I think Peter the fact that he denied Jesus when that trial was going on, he's worried about that very thing himself. And we next. So the disciples are behind locked doors. And so if you, they'll throw the scripture up there in John chapter 9. Oh, I need to explain this. Uh, my, my anniversary was Thursday, but on Thursday, I also went to a plastic surgeon. Uh, a dermatologist uh, had some basil cell on that. I thought basil was something I put on pizza. But, uh, some, and they cut it out, so I have a black. My wife did not do this. We are much in love, 55 years, and so, uh, but this is not that. But if, if you're kind of wondering why does he have a black eye in stitches, that's why I have a black eye. I'm an advertisement for why you should wear a hat in Florida and sunscreen type of thing. Back in my day, you just got burned and then, you know, uh, you had pain for a couple of days and then you just stayed out in the sun. So uh, I don't even think we had sunscreen. We, we had, uh, I'm not sure what we had at that point. It was like before the Civil War. So, you know, crazy times. But anyway, let's look at this passage in John chapter 20. It says, on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. All right, are they next? Jesus came and stood among them and said, now understand Jesus was not in the room at the time, but all of a sudden he appears and he stands among them. And what does he say? In Hebrew, he would say, shalom, peace be with you, well-being. Right, have wholeness in your life. So he says, "Peace be with you." Verse twenty. And, and after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Showed them the scars where they tucked the spear in and where they placed the nails. Uh, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. I mean, wow! This is real. This is happening. And again, Jesus said, "Peace be with you." As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now he's giving them a commission or reaffirming a commission that he had talked about. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. All right? Jesus is one who came and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now he's breathing on them in a new way. Some feel that this is similar to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. All right? That this is John's kind of version of that. 
And then he gives kind of a, a controversial verse in verse 23. And we're going to look at that first. It says, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, I have had students at Southeastern say, what's going on here? That, do I have the power to forgive sins or not to forgive sins and something? And, and so we need, we need to kind of knock this verse out of the, out of the way first. Sometimes when we're looking at Scripture, we come across things that we like, and then there are some things in there that, you know, kind of, what's he talking about there? That's why we are disciples, because disciples are students, are learners. And it's our job to really study the word of God as his followers, to be a student. What is, what is he saying here? So we're going to kind of talk about this, this first part here because it is kind of controversial. What does this mean when he says, uh, you know, uh, if you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you don't not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Um, th this is challenging. In the Roman Catholic Church, and some of you might have that background, verse 23 has given priests judicial authority to hear confessions and to grant absolution, forgiveness of sins. All right? The, the problem is that on no single occasion in Scripture is that ever done. All right? Particularly in the times of Jesus and afterwards. On no single occasion. Paul never talks about that. James never talks about it. Peter never talks about it. So the, the, the Roman Catholic Church just kind of take that as a church policy. But that's not what the scripture is, is saying here. So let's make this clear. God does not forgive the sins of humanity because we decide it's okay to forgive them. Nor does he withhold forgiving somebody because we decide we're not going to forgive them. Let's make that clear at that point. All right, you with me on that? God does not do that uh, based on us. So what is he saying here? One of the things that we need to see that in the original language, this is very clear that he's not talking to just a single person. He's talking to them collectively. You plural, he's saying. Now he's talking to basically the first church leaders. Peter's in this group. These others, they're, they're, they're called apostles at this time and so forth. So these are the first leaders. These, he, into the 11 disciples, he has left the commission of the church. And they're going to be the leaders of the church as it grows. So he's talking to them as leaders. Now we do see in scripture, particularly in the New Testament, that church leaders are responsible for dealing with sin when it's in the camp. Give you an example. As you go to Acts chapter four, at the close of the chapter, there's a fellow by the name of Barnabas. A person of encouragement. He's the one who kind of encouraged the disciples, hey, we need to, to pick up and follow this guy, Paul. I think it's a real thing because Paul had been one who had been persecuting the church. And now Barnabas kind of takes his side. And in fact, Paul and Barnabas go on their first missionary trip together to share the gospel. And as the close of that chapter, it says that Barnabas had a, a field and he sold it and he took all the money and he gave it to the church for the church's needs. All right? And maybe they had, you know, uh, Circle J camp and they needed some money or something like that or scholarship. So he, he, he did that. Now, when we turn to chapter five, we find there's a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira. They, they probably heard what, what Barnabas has done and how the church kind of maybe raved on him uh, uh, because of his generosity. So they sold some land. But what they did is said, okay, we, we sold it, let's say for 50,000. 
All right, but we're going to keep 10 and we're going to give 40,000 to the church, but we're not going to tell the church that we sold it for 50. We're going to tell them that we sold it for 40 so we get full credit for this money. So Ananias comes to the church leaders and Peter confronts him. All right, why? Because Peter has the sense of, of wisdom and the Holy Spirit there and said, Ananias, this property, you, you, could have, you could have sold it for what you did. All right, that's fine. Yeah, you could have kept a portion for yourself, no problem. But you lied to the church. But not only that, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And when Peter said that, anybody knows what happens to Ananias? Drops dead. All right. And so men come home and carry him out and bury him. His wife did not know that. And she comes and is before Peter. And he asks her the same thing. And she carries on the lie. She drops dead. Now I'm not about you, but that, that might cause revival in some places or at least cast fear out of us online if that happened here on Sunday morning. And I hope it doesn't. All right. But I mean, that, that's a strong message of the church. But there is a place where you see leaders confronting sin. Another place is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. There's a, a man who it says is living with his father's wife. All right. So it, most likely it's not his mother would have said that. And it's most likely his stepmother. And he's not only living with her, they're sharing the bed together. They are having sex together. And the church knows about that. And they're accepting him. And they're kind of proud of the fact that there's so acceptance of this man who's actually living in sin, a sin that even society would, not, would be angry about. And so he tells the church, Paul writes to the church, and he says, man, you need to deal with it. Our role as the church is not to judge the world. All right? We're not out to condemn the world. Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And he said, that's not our role, but we are to deal with sin when it's in our camp. And so he, he says, you need to deal with this man and you need to stop acting like he's a believer and treating him like a believer. In fact, you need to, the terms actually says, hand him over to Satan. Basically what he's saying, you need to put him out of the church if he's going to walk around calling himself a Christ follower and openly living in sin and everybody knows it. So there's a place where they deal with sin at that point. And then if we look at Matthew 18, it also, Jesus says that if you have a problem with somebody and you see somebody who's doing something wrong and they're a believer, and you feel the necessity and the Holy Spirit leads you to go and talk to them and deal with that sin, you need to go do it. If they reject you, bring in a third party and let you decide there, is this guy openly dealing with sin and doesn't want to repent of that particular thing? And if they won't listen to the third party, you need to take him to the leaders of the church and talk to them. And if the man still denies it, then you need to put them out of the church. Treat them as an unbeliever. So there are times when there is the responsibility for church leadership to deal with sin that's in the camp. That's unfortunate at times. But it's the same, the idea, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, hopefully people will repent and turn from that situation and realize their wicked ways and deal with it. So I, I believe that's what he's talking about here because we have instances of them dealing with sin that's there. All right, are you with me on that? Kind of a scary thing, but that's the only thing that I can really find to explain that particular passage. The second thing is, is just kind of, uh, you know, what's our future look like as believers? Jesus comes into a locked room, and yet he has scars that they can examine. Now, Jesus is not a resuscitated corpse. And what do I mean by that? Uh, 
There's three times that we're told in scripture that Jesus raised somebody from the dead. There's the widow of Nain whose son is dead and they're having a funeral and Jesus sees it and he's moved with compassion and he goes over and he touches the boy and he rises up. He is resuscitated, has the same body, but he's renewed at that point. Not a glorified body, he just comes back from the dead. And then there's Jairus, who's a synagogue leader, who when Jesus gets off the boat from crossing the Sea of Galilee, comes and kneels at Jesus' feet and said, my daughter is six, she's 12 years old, will you come and heal her and make her well? Well, Jesus is ready to follow Jairus to his house. And along the way, there's a woman who has an issue for a blood for like 12 years. And she kind of interrupts the thing and she touches him and he's healed. And Jesus takes the time to find out, you know, who touched me. And meanwhile, after the woman's healed, news servants come from Jairus' house and they say, don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter is dead. And Jesus says to Jairus, just believe it's going to be okay. Actually, he goes to the house with a couple of his disciples and, and they're kind of, uh, people are mourning and so forth. And, and Jesus says, no, the girl is just asleep, but they're laughing because no, she's dead. And he goes up and he raises her. She's resuscitated at that point. And then there's the, the brother of Mary and Martha, Lazarus, who is dead and actually in the grave for four days. And Jesus prays and he is resuscitated and he comes out. Now, all three of those people eventually die. All right. They were resuscitated. Jesus is not a resuscitated corpse. He has a new glorified body. And as far as we know and believe, we're going to get a body like that, that we can go in and out of rooms that have locked doors. And yet at the same time, we will be recognized for who we are. When Jesus was at the tomb and, and Mary Magdalene is wondering where her Lord is, she thinks he's the gardener. She doesn't recognize him at first, but she finally recognizes his voice and realizes that Jesus. When Jesus shows his scars, they see it's him and they rejoice. That's what the scripture tells us. So and somehow our resurrected bodies are going to be different. They're going to be able to be recognizable in some ways, but the same way, you know, I guess we can go from room to room and not open the doors if they're locked, all right? Beam me up, Scotty, but you know, something along that line, but there, there's something different there. So in, in case you're wondering what your glorified body was, you know, there's gonna be some things there. there we're not gonna be a ghost. In fact, in Luke 24, 39, uh, the same situation is there and he says, it is myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Now Jesus again is in his glorified body. Now how that's gonna work, I don't know. But there's something good to know that there's, there's something new to our body. We can recognize one another in heaven, all right? And we'll still have some marks on us that are there. I, I might still have a scar here and a black eye, I don't know. But you know, we'll, we'll see what happens at that particular point. But the third thing that I see in this passage is that he comes into this room and they are scared to death. The doors are locked. Are we next? Are the Jewish leaders and the Romans officials out looking for us? Have you ever been that place that you're scared to death or at least you're kind of distressed over what's going on in your life? And Jesus walks in the room and says, Shalom, peace be with you. Now think about that. There's times when, when we have greetings with people when we say, hey, how you doing? Fine, how are you? You know, and we just kind of pass and, and really don't get into it. And there's other times we say those same words, but it's a different situation. 
Maybe they've lost a loved one to cancer or something along that line, and they're grieving. And we say, hey, how are you doing? It's a difference in that. It's just not a cliche at that point. So Jesus was saying shalom not as a, as a cliche at this point. He is saying peace be with you. I know this is a difficult time. I know you're worried about your life and what's going to happen. But peace be with you. And, and we see that they're overjoyed at that particular thing. I, I've shared before, there was a time a couple years ago as, as former provost at Southeastern where my, my role as a chief academic officer is to, to hire faculty, but sometimes to let them go. Maybe they're not fulfilling their contract or something. And I had one of those days on April 5th a couple years ago, and um, it was telling nine faculty, we're not going to renew your contract. That's the worst part of my job. And... and uh, maybe you've read this book before. I know some of you had it. It's a little book called Jesus Calling by Sarah Young. Sarah writes little devotions in here as if Jesus was talking to you. God was talking to you and not her. And, and I remember reading this particular passage. And let, me, and let me just read it to you. It says, as you go through the day, trust me to provide the strength you need moment by moment. Don't waste energy wondering whether you are adequate for today's journey. My spirit within you is more than sufficient to handle whatever the day may bring. That is the basis of your confidence. In quietness, spending time alone with me and confident trust, relying on my sufficiency is your strength. Now, I was worried about that day. It was not some day I was looking forward to. And I remember having my devotions that morning and coming across that, and I felt like the Holy Spirit was just jumping off the page and speaking to me, Shalom, peace be with you, peace be with you. I don't know what some of you are going through today. Maybe you're at that place that you need to really hear from God say to you, peace be with you, I'm with you, I'm there, I'm your God. Just what we said in that last worship song, I got your front, I got your back, I got your side. I got you. You're in my hands. I am your God and I care for you. That's the God that we serve, where he's saying to us, peace, wholeness. The world can be falling down around us, but God's peace is something that can sustain us in that time. Paul, in, in Philippians chapter four writes, he says, I've learned to be content no matter what the situation, whether I'm rich or poor, I've learned to be content. And he's writing that from prison. I've learned to be content. He had God's peace. And that's what God offers us all the time. That peace, that shalom, peace be with you. And, and it can bring us joy in the midst of our trouble. So hold on to that today. If you're at that place that you're wondering, just what is God doing here? What's God doing at this time in my life? Let me just enjoy his peace. Take time just to be in his presence and experience that. The last thing I see in this passage is the commissioning that he gets. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Now, Jesus' work on earth was done at this point. He had completed the work. In, in John chapter 17, he even says that, Father, I've, I've, given, I've completed the work you gave me to do. I have made you known. He's done. He's going to be beamed up to heaven and be with the Father. But he has sent us the Holy Spirit. And that's what he does in this passage. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit to carry out his work. Now, when I look at that verse as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. 
How has the Father sent Jesus? I I love the passage in Philippians chapter 2 that talks about this. It says in verse 5 of Philippians 2, in your relationships with another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Let me read that again. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality of God something to be used to his own advantage. In other words, he laid it aside and he came to earth. It says, by taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus came to serve. He, he tells that to the disciples over and over again. Read, read the close of Mark chapter 9. The greatest among you will serve the rest. So how are we being sent? We are being sent as Christ followers to serve people, to serve one another, to give the best customer service to anybody that we come across. We're here to serve others. All right, so the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. That means we get rid of pride in our life and we humble ourselves. It takes a lot of humility for Jesus to, to step down on the last night he is with his disciples and take a basin of water and wash feet, dirty, smelly feet, with dirty fingernails and, well, not fingernails, toenails and so forth, and, and to deal with that. But that's who he was. He didn't say, well, wait a minute, I'm the son of God, I'm not washing feet. No, he humbled himself. And there's times that God is, is going to ask us as his followers to do something that we feel, oh, man, that's, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. And he's just testing us to see how humble we will be. Jesus went to the cross for us. Are we willing to humble ourselves to do that? Being made in human likeness, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death. So one of the ways that Jesus was sent, he was sent to be obedient. He did not do his own will, but he did the will of his fathers. What did he say all the time? These are not my words. I'm not doing my thing. These are the words of the Father. These are not my acts. I'm not, not doing my thing. These are the acts of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen what our Father is like. And so as Jesus was sent, we're being sent in the same way, to serve, to be humble, to be obedient, to be loving unconditionally. Now think about this. Jesus is 100% perfect. He is God. There are no flaws, no sins, no faults at all in him. And when he became flesh and blood like you and I, he was the same way. He was a carpenter for a while. I'm imagining because I was a carpenter for a while, he probably banged his thumb a couple times. But I don't think he cursed at the same time. Maybe he said, well, praise God. I'll take another shot at it and not hit the thumb this time. I'm not always good at that. All right? I have other thoughts going on at those particular times, and I need to work on that. But Jesus was sinless all the way. That's why he could die on the cross for us, for us because he was sinless and be the perfect sacrifice for us. And yet he came among people with flaws, all of us. Romans tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So here's a perfect God among imperfect people. Now, he doesn't rate us on a scale where these, are, these people are 95% good, they're only 5% bad. These people are 60% good, they're, they're 40% bad. These people, oh man, they're only 20% good, they are 80%. He doesn't rate us that way. He sees as you break one law, you're a lawbreaker. 
for life. You have sinned. And yet that didn't stop a holy God from loving us and accepting us unconditionally. He loved us. Who did he hang around with? The unlovable people, Samaritans, half-breeds, tax collectors. Ooh, all right? People that not only take our taxes, but they, they take extra for themselves. They are allowed to do that and pocket the money. They could charge us anything, and, and we can't do anything about it. Prostitutes. I mean, the low of the low in our mind. And yet there was perfect love and acceptance. Is he not in sending us as he was sent, asking us to do the th same thing? Are there times that we look down at certain people, maybe because they're not educated like we are? Maybe they're a different color than us. Oh, God forbid, maybe they're a different political group than us. Ooh, gosh, now we're really getting nasty, right? Maybe they're a different sex than us. Maybe they're the same sex and they're saying they're a different sex than us. And we, we have a problem with that, all right? As Christians, sometimes we become very judgmental in those areas. George Barnard did a study and he said that 90% of non-believers say the number one problem that they have with Christians is that they're anti-homosexual. I think it's like 87% said they're hypocritical, 85% says they're judgmental. That's their view of Christ followers. Gandhi said, I like your Christ, I just don't like your Christians. Why? Because they don't see Jesus in us. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit as he breathes on us when we accept Christ into our life. In other words, he gives us the ability to be like Christ, to humble ourselves, to serve, and to, to die to ourselves and get rid of that pride. People are looking for Jesus in us. The church, Christians, what are they seeing? I would love to get rid of those statistics that 90 and 87 and 85% that when they think about a Christ follower, they think about somebody who's loving and caring and accepts us no matter who we are simply because we're, we're lovable at that particular point. I, I came across a quote from, from John Stott, a retired, retired, he's with Jesus now, but uh, uh, pastor and, and, and study and, and kind of a, a real theologian at this point. And he says, Jesus' mission involved the incarnation, taking on flesh, which has been described as the most spectacular example of cross-cultural identification in the history of the world. It was total identification, though without any loss of identity, for in becoming one with us, he did not cease to be himself. Well, I, I can't hang around with non-believers. I might become like them at that point. We have the power to hang around and love people that are different from us, that are outside our comfort zone and still keep our identity as believers and just love them unconditionally. That's what God is looking for. As the Father has sent him, he's sending us to be that loving, servant, humble, dying to self person so that others might know God. We need to pe treat people as people created in the image of God and not projects to save, all right? If we treat them as people and we love them unconditionally, I think they will become Christ followers, or at least they'll be more open to Christ followers. 
and not have a bad taste in their mouth when they're around church people and Christ followers. Jesus, it says in John chapter 3, did not come to condemn the world, but to love the world and give himself up the world. It is not our role to, to disagree with somebody and, and not be around them because they're not our political view or they're a different race or an ethnic group or they have a, a different sexual you know, gender identification. Our job is to love them and to reach out and care for them as Jesus did. Are you ready for that? That's tough when there's somebody that we just, you know, oh, that goes against who I am. Who you are is Jesus to them is what we are to be. We are to be the children of light and hope and not children of darkness and condemnation. We are not to be judgmental or hypocritical. Instead, we are to go and to live and display Jesus and that unconditional love to people. That's what he wants us to do. Jesus, in the, in, in, his mission in the world has been accomplished, but now he breathes on us to receive the Holy Spirit and the power to show that same kind of love and acceptance that he showed. So, Father God, I pray that you would help us, help us in this to fulfill the mission, not only to know you and know you more, but to also make you known in this world. Lord, by doing that, by becoming just like you, help us. We are your followers, and we want to change the bad reputation that your church has often had from unchurched people. Lord, help us to be loving of all people. And, and if you're here today and, and you're, you're wondering whether to become a Christ follower, hey, God loves you and accepts you. You don't have to do a certain thing to become a Christ follower. You just need to say, Jesus, come into my heart, come into my life. And so I encourage you to do that and, and, and accept Christ because he's a loving God. So Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your power that you breathe in us with the Holy Spirit. Help him to work change in our life that we might better represent you, that people might see Jesus in us that loving, serving, humble person. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Let's do that, that chorus, okay, that we sung. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. May he lift up his countenance and be gracious unto you and give you peace. Amen. Have a great Sunday. Have a great week. Come back and see Jeff next week. He'll have stories of